It's not fair. Every parent, every teacher, anybody who's looked after a child will have heard those words at some point or another. Children are hugely sensitive to any perceived unfairness in the way that they are being treated compared to others. He's got more juice than me. He had longer on the iPad than I did. You spent more money on him than me. To use some examples at random. (laughs) You could say that children have an inbuilt sense of justice and present as outraged when this value is not upheld. But it's not just children who see it. If we as adults stopped and thought about the world in which we live, not just our lives, but the lives of others, we'd have lots of reasons to say, it's not fair. When you read of the average pay for FTSE 100 executives in the last year, rising by 21%, compares the average UK wage increase of 0.7%. When you experience the reality that the quality of an education a child in the UK receives is determined by the income level of their parents. When you hear of milk producers making a loss on selling their milk so supermarkets can make a profit. When the treatment of someone with the Ebola virus varies so dramatically between the West and Sierra Leone. When you read of people with the most money or the biggest multinationals in our society being able to avoid the tax they owe. Or when you hear, as I did, of a company telling an employee to fire somebody and just stop paying them, don't worry about statutory redundancy because they can't afford to sue us anyway. When you hear these stories or see them on the news or read them in the paper, I think we'd hard be hard pushed to say, there is justice being done. I think we'd have to say too, it's not fair. The question is, what are we going to do about it? The temptation is to shrug our shoulders, say it's the way of the world, and concentrate on looking after ourselves and our families. It's the natural reaction. And in a UK economy where there is less money going around than before, it is the path I see many people take. Look after number one. But the more important question is this. What does the Bible say about what we're going to do about it? What does the Bible say about it's not fair? Because if you're a believer this morning, I hope that's the really crunch question for you. Because following Jesus, I hope you know, deep in your heart is not a Sunday morning, private only, spirituality thing. Jesus calls us to follow him with our whole lives. And so as part of that, we offer our minds and how we think about these big questions, including of injustice, it's not fair. We're called to measure what we think against the Bible, including the big challenges in our society and our world today. But if you're not a believer this morning, if you're here just looking and searching, you're really welcome if you're seeking truth, Uh, I hope this question matters to you as well. In fact, I bet it does. I bet you want to know what the Bible says about the matters of injustice in our world today. Perhaps you want to know if the church has things to say on issues beyond women bishops or same-sex marriage. Well, it's with the big question of justice 
that we're engaged this morning as we look at our next chunk in the second half of the book of Exodus. Uh, Just a reminder of the story so far, if you're here uh, for the first time or catching up, we we, we, uh, uh, are taking up, uh, we took up the story of, of the book of Exodus at the moment when the Israelites had passed through the Red Sea, having been rescued by God from the clutches of the evil Pharaoh in Egypt. And we've been looking since the beginning of September at their journey through the desert, seeing the way God has provided for them in manna and quail, in victory over the Amalekites, in good advice to Moses from Jethro, his father-in-law. And then we got to Mount Sinai, which is where God came down and revealed the law to Moses, uh, a law that was to shape their living when they get to the promised land in Canaan. Uh, Now, the first part of the law we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, that's the very famous Ten Commandments. Uh, But it didn't stop there uh, when God gave the law to them. Many chapters of laws were to follow, recorded both here in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well. Now, that's a lot of law. And we're going to need to think carefully about what to do with it. Because the temptation is is to kind of jettison it, to kind of get rid of it. And we could marshal two reasons for doing that. The first is that so much of the law seems out of date now. I mean, instructions about mixed fibres and shellfish seem a little bit sort of um, from another age. And the second reason we could marshal is that from the New Testament, we know that we're not bound by the law anyway. We probably know that Jesus came to die for our sins because we could not keep the law. And one of the pivotal moments in the early church, if you remember when we were looking at the book of Acts together, uh, was when the church agreed that new Christians from a non-Jewish background did not need to be circumcised. The law did not apply to them in that way. Those arguments have weight. But they do not mean that we should not look at the law or learn from it. We should. And I'll tell you why. Because when we look carefully Behind the specific laws, we can see the enduring character of God who calls them to be written. The God whose character does not change. And we see, therefore, when we read the law, God's heart for his people and his world. And that is a heart I'm sure we want to know. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go behind the specific laws uh, detailed in Exodus 23, and we're going to discover something really important about God's heart for justice and how he calls his people to be a people of justice in a fallen world. And we're going to see how God's generosity is the key to us being just. So have your Bibles open with me, if you wouldn't mind. Exodus chapter 23 uh, is on page 81. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 to 19. And there's a purple batting order that shows you where we're going this morning. And you'll see that I'm proposing we look at this passage under two headings. First of all, doing justice, reflecting God's character. And secondly, doing grace, celebrating God's generosity. So first of all, doing justice, reflecting God's character. Let's have a look at these first laws in verses 1 to 13. At the moment, they seem, at first sight, they seem like a kind of semi-random collection of rules. But behind them all is a concern for justice, that is, people behaving honestly and treating others equally and fairly. So there's the command for truth-telling in verses 1 And verse 7, 
No bribe-taking in verse 8. Then there are the rules to ensure that people are not treated unjustly simply because they're in certain different categories. In verse 4, it's don't treat your enemy unjustly simply because he's your enemy. That's what the donkey bit's about. In verse 6, it's don't treat the poor unjustly, so that is denying them justice, simply because they're poor. In verse 9, it's don't oppress the alien, that is the immigrant in your midst, not uh, E.T. Don't oppress the alien simply because they are an alien. And in verse 12, it's don't treat your slave unjustly by making them more work, do more work than you do, simply because they are your slave. So, so behind all these kind of laws about things is a picture of, of, of behaving honestly and treating people fairly. Uh, that's the understanding of justice that is behind these words that God spoke to Moses. You cannot treat people differently simply because you can get away with it or because it feels good or because they're different. Yeah, do you understand? That's what justice is. You cannot treat people differently simply because you can get away with it or because it feels good, or because they're different. That is not justice. Now, these few laws are, if you like, just a tiny little snapshot, one small example of what is a huge biblical theme, which is God's concern for justice. This concern is writ large throughout the Old Testament, in the other laws that God gave to Moses, in the writings of the Psalms, and especially in the Prophets whose major criticism against God's people, beyond the complaint that they've forgotten God, is that they've forgotten justice. In fact, it's almost as if their forgetting of justice is proof that they've turned away from God. Hear these words from Isaiah. You don't have to turn to it, but I've put a reference. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. This is what Isaiah says to the people of God. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And in case we think it's just in the Old Testament, it's there on the lips of Jesus too. When Jesus is criticising the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, for their empty hypocrisy, this is what he says in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy and faithfulness. You see, God's concern for justice, for treating people equally, whatever their category, is writ large throughout the Bible. It is rooted, I believe, in the creation belief that all people are made in the image of God and are therefore worthy of respect and fair handling. And no person is to be treated differently simply because they have less money, influence or power. It's sometimes said that God has a bias to the poor. I don't think that means that God loves poor people more than rich people. The Bible says that all are sinners and all are loved. 
But I think God knows that it's the poor who most often miss out on justice. They are the first to suffer when justice is running low. And God cares passionately about that. So what we see here, in just this small snapshot, but writ large across the Testaments, is God's concern for justice right at the heart of the law. The blueprint for how God's saved people are to live in relationship with him includes justice at its heart. It's proof, if proof were needed, that the Bible knows nothing of the distinction between personal morality and social justice. That's often the division that seems to be in politics in our society today. Liberals talk of the need for social justice, conservatives of the need for personal morality. But the Bible puts them together. Because personal morality, Ten Commandments is all about that. Social justice, it's there in front of us today. Let me be clear what I'm saying. The law does not bind us. We don't need to do exactly what it says in Exodus 23. But we still need to recognise that these verses form an important part of what it means to live as God's saved people. And that is to do justice. Yes, we are first of all to love God. But if we love him, we will do the justice that is on his heart. The question is, what does that look like? Well, I think there are some areas where some of us might be called to do justice in very specific ways. But there are ways in which all of us are called to do justice all the time. Let's take the specific ways first. And what I'm really doing here is reflecting back to you ways in which people from this church that I know and others I know are seeking to live out God's heart for justice in practical ways. I'm thinking of the person who is investing significant time as a governor in a local struggling school so that the children there will have better educational opportunities. I'm thinking of the person who helps prisoners to read so they have a better chance of going straight in the outside world. I'm thinking of a group working on a Beeson project so the materially poor can live in better surroundings. I'm thinking of the person serving on the board of a charity that seeks to address hidden need in Surrey. I'm thinking of the person who's part of an amnesty letter-writing team who regularly writes to foreign governments arguing for justice for someone who has yet to receive it. I'm thinking of the man giving pro bono legal advice to those who can't afford to receive it. And there are many, many more that I'm aware of. We can't do all of these all the time. But I suppose what I'm saying is if God puts an opportunity in front of you to do justice in a way that perhaps builds on your gifts, experience or talents, you should go for it with both hands. Because by doing that, you are living out the heart of God. But there are things all of us can do if we're serious about doing justice. I put them under three headings. First of all, we can spend thoughtfully. Because all of us spend money, all the time, on food, on clothes, on stuff. And often we just go for the cheapest or the best deal. But if we're serious about doing justice, we will think before we spend. Think about the people who produce the stuff that we are buying. Are they being treated justly? The fair trade movement is a great example of people who take these questions seriously. And while those questions are difficult, 
They should not be avoided. So doing justice can be as simple as standing in the co-op and choosing to buy fair trade bananas that cost 20p more rather than ones where we don't know where they were sourced. Now, it doesn't stop with that doing justice, but it can, it certainly starts there. Spend thoughtfully. Second, speak truthfully. Doing justice in this passage is about speaking the truth and not going with the crowd. Justice cannot be done when the truth is not told. I think of one person I know who blew the whistle on dodgy business dealings in his firm. They were not behaving justly, and he called them out on it. Now, that ultimately cost him his job. But he did it anyway, and it was part of what his commitment was to do justice. Speak truthfully. It may be that you have an occasion this week where you need to speak truthfully and enable justice to be done. And thirdly, share generously. You see, part of doing justice, it seems to me, in these verses, is not about maximising profit at all costs, so you don't flog the field year after year, or make your servants work 24-7. One way we can guard against this is actually sharing what we have with people who we may not know. I'm hugely proud that this country is maintaining its commitment to give 0.7 of GDP to international development, even in its straightened economic times. It seems to me that is part of this country doing justice. But it plays out in the personal sphere as well. I read a letter in the Telegraph a week or so ago where the writer was complaining about a previous correspondent, a vicar no less, who had talked of the importance of wealth distribution. And the letter writer said that he'd already paid his taxes and was going to be sharing his income by helping his children buy houses. And he inferred that his job was already done. I have to say, I think that falls short of what doing justice really looks like. We're called to be generous to the people we don't know, as well as the people we do. I know, for example, that immigration is a complex area, but as Christians, we cannot read the instructions about caring for the alien in our midst and then keep everything to ourselves. This is what Justin Welby said uh, this last week uh, at at a meeting in Parliament. He says, you have to be careful. You can't overburden a community with immigration, he means. You have to be realistic about that. But the heart of Christian teaching about the human being is that all human beings are of absolute equal and infinite value. And the language we use must reflect the value of the human being and not treat immigration as just a deep menace that is somehow going to overwhelm a country that has coped with many waves of immigration and has usually done so with enormous success. If you want to find out more about what it means to do justice in your life, can I recommend a fantastic book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice? And we've got a number of copies on the bookstore today in which he sets out what looking, what doing justice actually looks like. And if you want a summary verse, it's there in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That was delivered to a bunch of religious people who were offering sacrifices to the Lord that he didn't want because they were not coming from a humble heart. And he says, what does the Lord require? I'll say it again. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.
Now, if I'm honest with you, I find this pretty challenging to preach on. I do so not because I don't believe it, but because I do. But I know I have personally much further to go in this journey of doing justice, of living out what Micah 6, 8 calls me to. You might be feeling the same, and, and if you're anything like me, you might at this point in the sermon be feeling a little bit guilty. I want to address that guilt, because I want to say guilt is not a healthy motivation for doing justice. I mean, it does work, but I suspect it tends to result in splurges of charity rather than a lifestyle of doing justice. So we give to children in need and then go and buy clothes at Primark made in sweatshops in Bangladesh. Guilt, you see, doesn't last. I want to tell you about a motivation that does last and can help us do justice in the long term, and that is doing grace, God's grace. And I was put onto this really by the second half of our passage this morning, which is about the three annual festivals the Israelites were to hold when they got to Canaan, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. I think I've got looking and thinking, what are these festivals really about? And I think what they're about is helping the Israelites remember that everything they have is a gift. You see, first of all, their rescue from Egypt was a gift from God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread there in verse 15, that's just another word for Passover. And we know what the Passover about. The Passover was the festival that God gave them to remind them that he had rescued them from Pharaoh, not as something they'd worked for, but as a gift, his amazing uh, gift to them. Uh, And the second type of gift is the provision of food. That's what the second and third festivals are about, the Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Engathering. They're about celebrating that God is the one who gives food to eat. So it seems to me there's a relationship here, and even these few verses, about remembering what we've been given and doing justice. And I think that's the same for us today, too. I think those two aspects are true for us, and I'm going to show you how by taking the second one first. First of all, we don't have the feasts of harvest and ingathering. We have a harvest festival, but but I think that the truth behind it is that everything we have is a gift from God. So our food, our possessions, our homes, they are gifts from God's hands, Now you might say, well, no, they're not, because I worked for them. I earned them. But who gave you the skills to work, the mind to understand? Having a belief in God's creative power and authority modifies, I think, our society's strong doctrine of personal ownership. Because as Christians, we want to say that all that we have is God's. There is nothing I have that does not belong to God. Nothing. I'm just a steward of it. See, I think knowing God's grace, the fact that everything we have is a gift, opens the door to our doing justice in our lives. But God's grace, you see, is seen not only in what we have, God's grace is seen above all in Jesus Christ. For our rescue, like that of the Israelites from Egypt, is not something we achieved on our own. We did not earn God's love, kind of accumulate points that would deserve his coming amongst us. We did not ask him to die for us. But as sinners, we were part of the reason that he did. And when he did, 
he offered to us the most amazing gift that we'll ever receive. Forgiveness, acceptance and hope. You see, I think when we are aware of how undeserving we are and how graciously we've been treated in Christ, I think that changes our hearts deep down. And I think that actually makes us sensitive to do justice in our lives. I'll give you some examples, but just by using some of the terms that we saw in this passage from Exodus. For example, if we remember our own poverty before Christ and the riches he gave us, I think we find ourselves growing in care for the poor themselves of every kind in the world. If we remember how we were enemies of Christ, and yet he still loved us, I think we'll want to treat our enemies fairly. If we remember that we were outside God's kingdom and have been welcomed in, I think we'll have a heart for those who are outside today. If we remember how Christ has refreshed us and taken our burdens, we'll want to do the same for others in our care. You see, if we want to do justice in the long term, we need to do grace first. We need to be aware of how much we have received, not only what we have, but how much we've been given in Christ. How we were poor and God made us rich. How we were enemies and God made us his friends. How we were aliens, immigrants, and have been welcomed in. And how we were burdened and came to be refreshed, when that is a a story that we know, I think that changes our hearts and actually puts us on a path towards doing justice that will sustain us in the long term. Think about this. You know William Wilberforce, the great reformer of the slave trade, what made him so passionate for justice? I don't know for sure, but I know the thing that grasped him first of all was God's grace. And he never lost sight of how gracious God had been to him. And it made him tender to the needs of others. You see, we started with a child's cry, it's not fair. We've been reminded injustice in our world is not simple, it is complex and long-term, entwined in the brokenness of a world stained by sin. We can't possibly hope to exhaust it in one sermon. But I think we've seen today that just shrugging our shoulders and looking the other way is not an option. To do so would be to deny the character of God as revealed in the scriptures, in these verses before us from Exodus 23 and so many others in God's word. We're called to do justice and to pray for God to show each one of us what it looks like. But we've seen today that what will equip us for this is not a kind of spasmodic dollop of guilt, but an overwhelming and ongoing sense of God's grace. What we need to do justice is to know grace. So let me meet with two questions. Will we ask God what he requires of us? Will we actually open up that part of our lives with that prayer? Do you just remember those words from Micah again? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Will we do that? Will we ask God, what does that look like in my life, Lord? What's it look like at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning in the leadership role that I have, in the service role that I have, 
to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And will we ask God for the help when that involves us being different to those around us? And will we pray for the courage to do that because of Christ? Will we ask, will we seek what he asks of us? And secondly, will we open our hearts afresh to the overwhelming grace of God shown to each one of us in Jesus Christ? Will we let our hearts, as well as our minds, be changed by the fact that we have been given so much, not in what we own, but in what we've received in Jesus Christ? And will we let that story of being saved in him look at our world differently?